Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that helps you protect your time to do deep work. Given all the projects I'm involved in, it's all too easy for my calendar to become a complete mess. With SavvyCal, I can set frequency limits so I only have so many meetings in a day or week. I can set preferred times to meet, and I can also toggle between multiple availability presets so I can batch similar meetings together. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Blake Amal. Blake is the CMO at copy.ai and also a really prolific creator on Twitter. I wanted to bring him on because Blake went from zero to over 13,000 followers in under a year. He's created a number of different side projects, including his latest called Float that allows you to create courses right in Notion. And so you'll hear about the unconventional way he became the CMO at copy.ai, how to build an audience on Twitter, and also why he builds in public. To start out, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? No, <laughs> that's that's the simple answer. The long answer is when I got into marketing, I had no clue what I was doing. And it took like six years of gradually getting more okay with it until I finally accepted that this was my career. Because mm-hmm. I, I tried a ton of stuff in between like coding and I just wasn't good at it. I tried design and I was okay, but not good enough. And like, it was always in the sphere of the internet and building something, but hmm. it ended up being that marketing was the one that stuck. It just took me probably six years to just be okay with that. And now I'm, I'm more than okay with it. I'm very happy. But yeah, it, I didn't, I didn't think this was going to be me. The signs were there though. When I look back for sure. What, what were some of the signs? Yeah. So my first, like the first clear sign for me was when I was in high school, junior, junior year, at the end of junior year, it was time to do all the, the student government elections and all that stuff. And I had never done that before. And usually the way it works, my school was pretty big. So our class was about 1,200 people. And the school in general had, you know, like three, 3,500 people, 4,000 people. So big school. And traditionally, the student government way of doing it was you just kind of been in it since eighth grade. And then you were in student government the whole time and it was always incumbents. So like I, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to try to run <laughs> and do this thing. And I was, people would have known me at that time as that funny, weird kid, that funny, weird kid, Blake, that was me. And I was well liked, I guess enough, but not really popular. Not, I, w- I didn't have a brand, I guess you would say, but my first foray into marketing where when I look back was totally that campaign right there, because Usually with these big high schools and these student student government elections, everybody will flood the commons with these massive poster boards that just say like, vote for Haley, vote for John. And that's, that's, so it was all in one place. And I took a different approach and I said, I'm going to make really, really small posters. The max that I'm going to do is a piece of paper. And sometimes I'll only use postcards and I'm going to just put them in places randomly in the halls that people usually don't even look. So it was, it was a totally, it was actually a pretty bad idea going into it, but I made them really funny. So my whole campaign was based around, I have this picture of me when I was a baby and I was like a monster. I was a super fat baby. <laughs> and so the whole campaign was vote for Blake and together we'll 
will eliminate childhood obesity. Basically, that was the whole campaign. Had nothing to do with school. Everybody else is like, we're going to get the school a pool and we're going to do all these fun activities. I'm just like, let's fight childhood obesity. And so that that was the platform and people liked it. They thought it was funny and they would find these really small posters that I'd made on random pillars that nobody ever saw. But then people would start crowding around these pillars and I realized like maybe I was onto something. And then when it was time for voting day to come, the, the results were posted and 97% of the people in my school voted for me at least no once. Way. So you got, you got like three or three to five votes. So it wasn't just obviously just the one vote because there are multiple people that get elected, but I got 97% of the people in my class to vote for me. So I was Dang. like, okay, cool. That was an effective marketing campaign. I don't think I could replicate that ever in my life. <laughs> that oh, was that man. was the first time when I look back, like, yeah, I was right. kind of made for this, but I never really understood that until, you know, a couple years ago. So you were like the, the OG sign guy on Instagram, except in real life yeah. with tiny posters, basically. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> and my posters were like, so there was that one. I had a Pokemon themed one. I had a Harry Potter themed one. Just whatever was cool 10 years ago. Right now, I'm actually, yeah. I, I kind of regret this right now as I talk about this because I'm currently planning our 10-year reunion now. But So that it's so like now I'm they're full of regret for that campaign, but it was very effective. You should just recreate everything that you did back then and just have like <laughs> the Blake Kamal, camp, yeah. you know, campaign for presidency recreation as the 10 year and just have like a, you could do like a, a signpost sort of like timeline, you know, of like, let's walk through <laughs> history and it's like all about you or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's interesting planning the, this thing during COVID, but that's a different discussion for sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Based on that story, I could definitely see the signs. But what did you think that you wanted to be, if, if not a marketer? You, you had mentioned sort of like programming, uh, mm -hmm. design, but like were there other things or maybe even other traditional career paths that were in mind before you landed on marketing? Yeah, I, I put a tweet out about this actually because my wife found I had a thing from like sixth grade or fifth grade. No, it was earlier than that. It was like second grade. It was a, a yearbook thing from second grade. And it had a list of stuff about me. And one of them, one of the questions was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had written down, I want to be a technology person. I don't know what I that means, it. but <laughs> so when, <laughs> when I look back, I guess I wanted to do that. I was never like all through high school and stuff. I didn't think I had it in me to program. And at that time there obviously were no, no code tools or anything that eased the transition mm -hmm. into that life. And so it felt very unachievable. I didn't even try. But I guess really what, what I wanted to be when I grew up always was an operator of a business. Like I, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur even before I knew that word. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. I just knew I wanted to be filthy rich and I wanted to do my own thing. And now I'm kind of doing my own thing. I'm, I'm working on the filthy rich part still. <laughs> but that, that's kind of what I knew. But it was very broad. I had very little direction. And that's maybe one of the reasons why college was less than effective for me. I guess you could put mm. that, that, that's a nice way of putting that. Like I spent three, four years in college and didn't graduate. And there's a reason because I kept switching stuff because I couldn't find any kind of joy in what I was mm. studying. And so it really, like I mentioned my, the first question, did I think I was going to be in marketing? Well, no, because I, I just got a job in SEO because I spoke French. That was the only reason I got the job and I was dealing with French Canadian clients I didn't know anything about the internet or SEO or marketing or anything. I just winged it for two, three years. And the whole time I was telling myself, I'm just doing this to get myself through college. And then, mm. and then I'm done. 
but that's just not how it happened. I just kept going and adding on to the skill set, working at companies and agencies and doing consulting. And yeah, that that's like my path here. Honestly, I just now figured out what I want to do when I grow up. Hmm. Took like, you know, like six months ago, I figured that out. I love it. Well, I mean, it, it's hard. It's very difficult for the vast majority of people who ask that question too. It's, you know, most people do not want to grow up to be a marketer and no. uh, <laughs> including myself, right? I, I will say that. And uh, so what was the original, I mean, you mentioned you were sort of like, cause you spoke French, you were working, it sounded like an SEO agency. What was like the, the foray into marketing and like walk me through your sort of like the career steps a little bit. Sure. So career really started in 2014. That's, that was my first year of college. So I was a volunteer missionary for two years from 19 to 21 lived in France. That's why I speak French just for context for oh. people. When I got back, I was 21 starting college at 21 while everybody else, all of my other peers that didn't do the same thing I did, they were two years, three years into college, you know, like ahead of, way ahead of me in life. Mm -hmm. And so I was starting from scratch at 21, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I didn't get into the university that I wanted to get into. I felt gypped. I went to another one that was fine, but wasn't really where, where I saw myself. And I just started studying general stuff because that's what you do when you start college. And none of my None of my like AP courses <laughs> passed over or anything. And so that was all just useless effort in high school, all the oh. AP crap. But I, I was just left with no clue. And I wasn't getting support to pay for college. I didn't have anywhere to go. I was super on my own. And so the one thing that was there was that I had, well, first off, I had a, a job at a call center and I quit immediately, even though I had no fallback plan because it was awful. And anybody that's worked at a call center, you're, you're an angel because it's the worst place on earth. It's absolutely <laughs> the worst job. But after that, I, I had a buddy that was, that had been a missionary as well with me in France. And he worked at this SEO company and he just said, Hey, we can probably get you a job. Do you know what SEO is? And I was like, yeah, I do. I, I know what SEO is. Of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm a pro. So I got on the team, had no clue how to even log into the computer. I was just totally clueless, but that was, that was the first step. Then from there, I worked in various positions there and actually did get pretty good at SEO there, even though it was more task-based than it was strategy and really started expanding my skill set. After that, I started, while I was still working there locally, I would start consulting small business owners in the area and just got better and better at that. Then I expanded beyond SEO and worked at an agency where I got more exposure into the ads life and email marketing and all this other stuff that existed that I hadn't done before. But when I was being interviewed for that job, they said, Hey, so are you any good at email marketing? I'm like, yeah, I'm great at email marketing. <laughs> I never done it before. So that, that's kind of like, I've always just said, yeah, I can do this. And then I did do it. It was just, you know, two, three weeks of really being bad and trying to hide that <laughs> to get so that they give me a chance. And it ended up working out. So multiple agencies, I've moved across the country for a bunch of different jobs and then all throughout been consulting. And then recently I had a job at a company called TalkDesk, which is in the very sexy call center software space. It's just not, bo not boring at all. It's, it's not <laughs> boring, but it was a great team, great people to work with. And then now, you know, I'm at Copy AI and working on a bunch of different stuff and really embracing my inner creator. So past year, that's that's kind of been my story. 
I love it. Yeah. Walk me through. So copy AI, it's funny actually, because now you're definitely a technology person on the bleeding edge of AI (laughs) and copywriting and GDP three and all sorts of technology there. But how did you make the jump? I mean, you're the CMO, right? Mm -hmm. How did that happen? I don't know. Is that okay okay (laughs) to just say it? Basically what happened was I have been create. I I started on Twitter. That's the big reason why is because I've been posting on Twitter for nine months now consistently, maybe almost 10 months now. And that's been a huge part of this. I've been building content other places. I've created content across LinkedIn, especially has been my platform for a really long time until it started really sucking really bad. But I, I hopped off LinkedIn a little bit to spend more of my time on Twitter in about August of last year. And at first it wasn't working super well in about September. I wanted to quit. I just thought this is going nowhere. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't get any engagement. I can't make any friends on this platform. But then really quickly, I just kept going. I pushed through that. And by December, things were going pretty well and I had at least a tiny bit of momentum and it just keeps building and building. So I think that, you know, Paul, the CEO of of Copy, he he saw that. He kind of knew of me. At some point in January, late January, things were just kind of aligning where at my company then talk desk i was a senior manager there i was managing an international team it was pretty challenging work but it was also really good and the people were really nice and i liked it there i actually wasn't looking to leave but there were just some things happening there that you know they they wanted me to move to another team and and lead that team and i told them i didn't want to do it and you know but i was i would do it for the team and so i was prepped to make that move and everything but right at that moment serendipity called and Paul was just like, Hey, do you want to join us at copy? Do you want to chat? And so we talked one time and I said, what does this look like? What do you want to do? He didn't really give me any concrete answers, honestly. Like (laughs) there wasn't a ton of detail (laughs) in that conversation that gave me any, but, but his energy and just looking at the company and everything was, was pretty cool. And it was infectious, honestly, from the get go. By the second time we talked, Still, there wasn't a ton of detail throughout the entire hiring process in those calls. It was like two, three Zoom calls max, and then I was on. Because you look at a product like this, and you're just like, yeah, I can I can do a lot with this. And the reason why I thought that was, I, and I don't know, Corey, if you've ever had this experience in your career, but this is the first time ever in my career where I've, I'm marketing the product, that I, a product that I actually use. Mm, right. I'd never had yeah. that before. Because... I was working at an SEO firm with no product. I was working at agencies where all of our clients were super boring. (laughs) Like the industries are boring in agencies. That's just how it goes most of the time. And I would never use any of their products. And even if I did, it's not the same as like having your hands on it and working it. And then TalkDesk is a call center software. I am one human being. So last time I checked, I don't need a call center software just for myself. And so like, this is the first time I've had a tool that I use, that I know that, I mean, that was huge for me. And just there, there's the side of it too, of like, it's kind of mind blowing when you use the tool. So that helps a ton. And then the team was awesome, but really the whole process was like two, three zoom calls with Paul and I was on board. I was just ready to go. Cause I'd never done this startup life thing and it sounded interesting and maybe to some people it would be risky, but like, I don't know <laughs> if I, if this doesn't work out and I get fired, like I'll figure something else out, but I would regret not doing something like this a hundred percent, like 100 out of a hundred times I would regret this looking back. So pretty yeah. easy decision to make even with the risk. 
Yeah, I love the attitude. Uh, that was my sort of decision-making framework when I joined Barometrics as well. I was, even though it wasn't sort of like a startup really at that point, I wasn't really looking to leave and I liked my current job and sort of had some interesting irons in the pot, but I thought, you know what, I think I would regret if I didn't do this. And uh, so that was, you know, a great way to sort of give you the kick in the butt you need to get out the door and go try something new, even though it's, yeah. even though it's scary. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and like, I even, I have kids too, and it's not without risk to, to make that move, but what's more likely that I, you know, that I just stay in my current job and everything's fine. And, but, the, but then I'll look back and totally regret everything. Yeah. That's probably really likely as opposed to like what, what could happen with copy? Well, I could get fired or things couldn't work out or whatever. And then I'll f- move on with a lot of valuable experiences behind. So like, which experience really do I want? It, it's that one, a hundred percent, even yeah. though, you know, the insurance, like, I didn't know if we were going to have insurance. I was the first person hired at this company. It was just the co-founders. There were mm. no processes. There were, there was no, I didn't know if there was insurance or if I was going to get paid or if it was just going to be an equity thing. And like, there were a lot of concerns and that's honestly most of what I talked about with Paul in those meetings. It wasn't too much about the product because sometimes you just know what you're going to be able to do with something. Yeah. Like you don't have to overthink a lot of stuff if it's, if it's really perfectly right for you. And this just was, so in our interviews, I wasn't focusing on that stuff because we were aligned with what could happen. And really the the whole notion was the sky's the limit. We can test whatever we want and we can break stuff and that's Mm -hmm. fine. And that's really intriguing to me. But in our calls, it was more like, hey, so am I going to have insurance so that I, because I'm having another baby in July and I don't want to pay for that out of pocket. That, that right, was mostly right. what the conversations were. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, yeah, you already had the marketing sort of ideas and the wheels were spinning and the product already has momentum. So talk me through the marketing strategy. Like, how do you think about it? What, what are the gears turning in your head about how you're thinking about bringing this product to market and growing and really achieving the vision that uh, you guys have set? Yeah, but before I even start on that, when I came on board, I mentioned that literally no processes existed for the entire company. So <laughs> I've, I've kind of been a COO a little bit too, like helping put together processes for everything and get things in place infrastructurally. That's been a huge focus. So the marketing mm. stuff is just now really starting to come out. But getting into the marketing strategy, the way that we're thinking of it, we have to you have to consider what are the challenges for customers currently or, or future customers and and how can we tackle those and make that make those issues smaller and for us and for anybody in the space it's all about education when people think about ai first off the first thought with ai is oh that's cool what does ai mean <laughs> that's like your right. first inclination what, what is that what does it do the second one is like people think it's there to replace you and it's going to come to your house and it's going to pull out a buzzsaw and saw your door down and it's going to take your family away from you. And it's going to replace like, that is not what AI is, but a lot of people think it's still scary because it's this new thing and they don't know if it's going to take over the world or if it's going to take their job. And the education of our product is essential, not just to show how to use the product, but telling a story about the past, present and future of artificial intelligence so that people can understand what, truly is going on and what truly is going on is not that replacement stuff it's totally supplemental to your own creativity it's just supposed to be an extension of your brain it's like a chrome extension for your brain Hmm. and the extension just helps you think of more thoughts that are helpful that that's the easiest way that you can think about it whatever you're trying to do 
you're just getting more content for that specific use case. And so it's all about just enabling more creativity, making people more able to create content, helping people start more businesses, more companies. That's the goal. Like Paul is, we've talked about this before, but one of the goals of the company that's not necessarily written in stone, but that we talk about often is we want to help people retire before they graduate from high school. That's one of the, that's one of our big goals. Like the future should be a bunch of 17 year old kids running around doing what they want because they are already retired because they built cool stuff in high school. Like that's the goal really. And there are already people that are kind of close to doing stuff like this. There are builders that are 10, 12 years old on Twitter that, you know, I'm sure too. And they're going to be rich. I'm telling you, they're going to be rich because they just build stuff. And so like that, that's a huge goal, but that doesn't happen without the education of, Mm. of AI first. And that's, that's a huge struggle. So marketing strategy wise, there's, there are a lot of questions to answer before we can even get cute and creative with how we want to push the, the product out. But, you know, beyond that, there are also a ton of things like we're focusing heavily on video and community. So I've already hired two people to fill those roles hmm. with video. We're going to be telling stories about this stuff to help educate people. We're also going to go heavy on tutorials and build out a, a full university of content that people can know how to use this product or just how GPT-3 works and how to use it to your advantage to be an extension of your brain. We're going to make videos about all kinds of stuff like that. The community side is going to be huge. Uh, The company is going to be built around a community first. That is Hmm. building in public is kind of our, our credo and that's what we're doing. But the community is how we actually do that and stay true to building in public, not just say that we're doing it, but actually widespread share the knowledge and failures and wins and everything that's going on at copy. That's how we do that. So those are, those are some core focuses and I could go on and on about affiliates and referral programs and blog content and SEO and paid advertising and UX and all this stuff there. It's true. Like we are being stretched in a lot of different ways right now. I would say from marketing strategy wise, the core thing that I, and, and also the leadership team are having to really narrow in on is just, yes, we have all these ideas. We have all these things we can do. How can we focus on one or two at a time and actually mm-hmm. get this stuff done? That's, that's the real strategy. It's prioritizing all the different stuff that we have, not losing it, but keep the rest in our back pocket while we go after this one thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's huge. I want to get back to some of the the tactics and strategies, but we also mentioned in the beginning that you have to do a lot of education, GDP three AI, it's all very new and it's all very an undefined sort of category. Although there are lots of players and competitors, I'm sure that sort of pop up left and right today. How do you think about marketing a product in a brand new category where you do have to do some educating and teaching It's maybe not like a defined category, like a a CRM or a help desk where people know what it is, how to think about it. And it already solves an existing need per se. It's, it's really interesting because I think it puts you at a disadvantage time wise for like what you can push out because you do have to build the foundation before you do anything really cool. But if you Corey think about the companies in the CRM space that people know, what's the company that comes to mind when I say CRM Salesforce and HubSpot. Okay, cool. What do those two do really well? <laughs> or one Content, of the few, th- yeah, like they do a million brand. things. But yeah, there, there are a billion things they do well. I shouldn't, that, that was a bad question, I guess. But like, <laughs> do you think about why people know Salesforce, why they know HubSpot is oh. largely, I think, because they are built on, they put in the work early on when CRMs weren't a thing. 
because right. at some point Salesforce wasn't a big brand and CRMs weren't a thing and people didn't know they needed that thing. Now every company in the world has one. The reason why is because Salesforce has been doing webinars and blog content and they, I, I'm sure they do podcasts and YouTube videos and they do partnerships and work with affiliates. They built the foundation of education to every single different use case, customer, partner, integration manager, like what every single person is covered education wise for those companies. HubSpot, a little bit different because they theirs is like really heavy on the content marketing and not necessarily just webinars. You don't think HubSpot and webinars, but for right. Salesforce, I think webinars, events, education. I hate their design. I don't like, they haven't changed their design or made it better for a really long time. And they're just skating by because they educated people better and more. And so I think, yeah, the, the opportunity cost is really, I mean, I'll rephrase this. I, I think that upfront, you have to put in your dues, pay, pay the time that maybe you don't want to do to create all that content because it's really tedious and kind mm -hmm. of boring to create educational content all the time. But the, the companies that do that are the companies that become the brand for that new big industry. So I think it's safe to assume that AI generated content in whatever form is going to be a big industry. Like I, I don't see a scenario where that doesn't become huge. If we want to stand out, we have to be the ones that educate people better. And do all the other things too. Like you can't slack on basically anything, but that I think that's a huge building block. That and that is one of the core reasons why in some of these industries you're talking about that at one point didn't exist. Now you know who the clear leader is, and it's not because of what Salesforce is doing today, because there are in, there are CRMs out there that are a whole lot more interesting in their marketing than Salesforce is, mm -hmm. but they still win because they built the brand a long time ago, built on that foundation of education. Right. They built that association with at first it was, you know, no more software and then it was CRM and uh, then, you know, branched out to all sorts of different things. Same thing with HubSpot, right? It was yep. all about inbound marketing and then it was content marketing and because they've built that association with, with those words, email marketing, automation. I think Pardot was maybe one of the first ones to, uh, uh, Pardot. And, right. <laughs> Pardot, <laughs> back, get, get away. Pardot and Marketo were the first ones to engineer there. Yeah. But that the new category really is uh, tough. It is hard, but you guys do have some good momentum. It's not like you're really pushing a boulder uphill. There is a lot of interest. There's a lot of curiosity. It is a sort of, you know, sexy technology being AI and GDP three, and people are at least vaguely familiar with it. But one of the things I always wonder about with these kinds of categories is that there's such a big, broad array of like problems and use cases and applications. How does that determine like the way, you know, who you target, who you go after, how yeah. you you know, craft a compelling message for those people to say, hey, you should use copy.ai for X, Y, and Z. It is, that's one of the biggest problems right now in the whole industry. Like when you look from, from us to other competitors and everything, we have some pretty clear ideas of our value prop and why it's different, but it is not to the point yet where people understand it enough to actually think that those are true value propositions or differentiators at all. And so and it's true that you look at our tool set, you go into copy AI right now, there are over 30 tools in there. So there's going to be a broad list of people that can use that stuff from a student 
to a 90 year old person that is like still in academia and wants to write an essay for, you know, for like their old law school or so like there are, there is such a wide array of different people. And then in, in the middle, all these different types of marketers and there's so much you could do. So that's one of the struggles, honestly, is like, Hey, who's our persona? Well, uh, anybody that writes stuff, I guess, but then, you know, as a marketer, that makes you cringe because you know that we can't be going that broad. And so right. ultimately what that means, I, I believe is that the sheer quantity of content that needs to be created for different personas need, it, it needs to happen. And that is a challenge and that a lot of companies are going to fall by the wayside in the space because they're not willing to put in the time and the resources to create that content. But if I'm only speaking to social media managers, which happens to be one of our better personas, I guess, better defined personas hmm. in terms of engaged customers. We know that social media managers use the tool for a bunch of different reasons. If that's all the only person that we talk to for this tool, it's probably not going to work out very well because we're, we're missing out on all this other stuff. So it's not your typical business where, you know, I'm working in the call center space and I know exactly what type of person I can talk to that's in charge of procuring that type of tool. And it's, it's not like, it, the the thing also is the people at talk desk that I was would market to were not the same people that would actually use the tool. I would be mm. talking to like operators and stuff, but not necessarily customer service managers, you know? And so it's like with this, the people we're trying to sell to are just one person. Most of the time, sometimes it's teams, but a lot of times it's one person and we don't know where they're coming from. So really it's it's up to us within our onboarding flow which we're improving every single day because right now it's not necessarily where it needs to be and we're improving it to get to that point and we can go into the reasons why that is the way it is as well but we have to collect more more data on them than uh than maybe other companies because we have to figure out what they actually care about so we can serve them better because that that information just not not there since we're it has to be so broad coming into the top of the funnel and that that is one reason why word of mouth actually does work very, very well for us though. So it plays to our advantage that there are so many personas because it it makes, it means that the product is highly shareable and relatable to a bunch of different people. So while we may not be as targeted in our messaging, we also can just rely on people to spread through word of mouth pretty easily because how awesome is it to see something, write something from you that didn't exist before. There's a clear aha moment within our product so it's really shareable. So there's there are pros and cons to both sides, but honestly, to answer your question, I don't know what this looks like at the end when when the industry is more mature, how we deal with personas. Like who is Canva's pers ideal persona? Right, right. I don't know. I use it, but I'm probably not even like the top person that they would want to market to. So I don't mm. know what it looks like, but I know that if we create more content for a greater amount of people that'll benefit us. I also know that it's good in some other ways that I've mentioned before. So you just take the hand you're dealt and, and you run with it. It's not going to be the same as, you know, marketing a, a company like talk desk, for example, it's gonna be totally different. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that uh, you just hired your first two roles for video and for community. And that's where you're starting with the marketing strategy. And compared to a lot of other things like, you know, written content or uh, podcasts or affiliates, referrals, just straight advertising, mm -hmm. why, why start with video and with community? Like, why are those the two kind of starting points for where you want to jump off with the marketing strategy? 
Yeah, I, th- I think this this ties back to the idea that education is our biggest barrier right now. Hmm. So we have to address that first and foremost. And so for the video role, yeah, we, we're, we're able to bring Austin on as our video lead, and he's going to help us create an explainer video and tutorials and all these deliverables. But beyond that, we're going to start building out these stories. So there, I, I don't know if you have examples of this yourself, like YouTube channels that just that aren't super technical all the time, but it's just more of they, they flow in a state of storytelling and they're really interesting for that in that regard. But that's kind of what we're going for as well. Like we want to have this layer of storytelling where it helps people understand the past, present and future of artificial intelligence so that they can feel a little bit more comfortable with technology and how to use it. But also, yeah, there'll be some tactical stuff in there where we can, arm them with better ways to use a tool, but it's not about that. It's going to be a lot more about creators and helping them create more and the, the tools and the technology that exists to actually enable that. So there, there's this side of it of educating on AI as a whole, educating on our tool, which will get more tactical uh, and then going in specific use cases for different roles and, and all that stuff and how people can use the tool. There, there's so much content that needs to be created. So, Video was pretty necessary right from the get-go. We're all, it's a, it's a written first culture. So you mentioned like written content. Everybody's writing stuff and we're building mm-hmm. in public and everybody's expected to be writing memos and helping with like the organization of the company. And, and then beyond that, actually writing content themselves. And this will be more prevalent in the coming months. But I recently wrote th- this early this week, actually, I wrote a blog. I wrote two blogs at the same time using the tool on the, I, I did this in Notion. On the left-hand side was the actual blog, and on the right-hand side was a blog about how I wrote the actual blog with Copy mm. AI. And so I was writing two at the same time, so killing two birds with one stone using the, t- the very tool that I'm marketing. So there's a lot of meta stuff going on with, with the written culture here that's very interesting. So that I, hopefully that answers more the video side, but on the community yeah. side, it's again, it's, it's a lot about education. Facebook group for general customers or anybody interested a slack group for just the highly engaged people that we're really going to create a feedback loop there that's the goal we're, mm. we're going to be able to actually hopefully let people build tools in slack with us which would be super cool and then get feedback on stuff we release so that that'll be a more engaged thing in our community and then diving even beyond that with affiliates and referral programs and, and partnerships and all this stuff there's so much that we're going to do but the community person really is there to help bring it all in and make sure that we're focused on what we need to be right now. So mm. that that's why those two have been hired. And then I've got a list of other potential roles that need to be filled pretty soon, but we're going to stick with that for at least a, a few weeks. <laughs> we'll see how it feels and then <laughs> add on as we need to, but it's pretty fast paced. And I think we're all, we're all pretty aligned here on what we want the strategy to be. Cause maybe, maybe you hear a company's first hire is the CMO. And then one of their two, two other very early hires are a video and a community person. Your natural inclination is to be like, that's weird. <laughs> Cause it is, right. it is weird. <laughs> but at the same time, that's going to play to our benefit because the, the rest of the companies are all doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. doesn't typically work out for, for many companies. Like the companies that have big IPOs or the companies that stand out as great brands rarely do what other people are doing. And so we're going to take the risk. It's not to say that what we're doing is for sure going to pan out because I could be wrong on my assumptions, but we're going to test this thing. And if it works, it really hits. And if it doesn't, 
it really flops. But at the same time, I, I feel confident with the product and the team that we're, we're more likely to go into the hit region than the flop. But there, you know, there's some uncertainty for sure. I think if you don't have any risk in your marketing strategy, then you're boring and nobody should pay attention to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I applaud you uh, for the risk. What well, one thing I want to get back to really quick was I think a lot of people, maybe in the, just like the marketing copywriting space, you know, will say there, there's kind of a lot of talk, especially when I think when machine learning was like a big thing at first, it was like everything had something like with machine learning and like, there's a lot of talk about, Oh, well, like no one cares about machine learning. They just care about like what the machine learning does for that person, what it does mm -hmm. for the product. And I think we see this a lot, even with crypto today, where it's like a lot of crypto products, it's like, you know, well, it's built on the blockchain. It's like, well, people don't care that's built on the blockchain, uh, on the blockchain. They care that it's secure or that it's uh, decentralized or something like that. But, but AI and GDP three is like, one of the big themes of like what you want to educate people about because if you, if you thought about that, like, you know, do people care about AI? Should we go strong on the AI sort of like theme and message, or should we leave it behind and focus more on like the outcomes? Definitely top of mind. Yeah. And, and honestly, some of our, I, I don't want to <laughs> pile too much onto our competitors or anything, but a lot of people in the industry are naming their AI. Hmm. So they've got, you know, one competitor, they have their AI is named Jarvis and they've got some other AIs right. that are like, they basically make them into real sentient robots. And to me, that's a little scary because that reinforces this idea that you're going to be replaced by a robot. So mm. what, one thing that, that is interesting is what we're doing is we, we don't have a name for the AI. We don't even pay attention to the AI at all. So Yes, it's important. And we're going to tell stories about artificial intelligence, but not for the sake of just explaining what it is and going deep into like all the different topics you could. It's it's more about this is what AI is and how it actually weaves into a human being's life is is more what that storytelling stuff is going to be like. With us, like I mentioned, we don't the there's no name for our AI. The, the company's called copy.ai and that's really where the nomenclature stops. When you get into the tool, it's all about what do you want to create? And it really puts the, the emphasis on you're making something, we're just helping you make more of it. As opposed to saying, we're going to do everything for you. We're going to, you know, our ideas are better than your ideas. We have a robot that will do everything for you. And then after the robot's done populating your results is going to go kidnap your family. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's, that's not really how I see it or, or I think how our leadership of, of our company sees it at all. So the AI is, I, I would say us more than anybody, we are putting more focus on the creativity side as opposed to the actual technology behind it. There will be some that, do well really diving into the technical side and maybe that speaks to a certain persona and that's that's fine but but we're more about just helping people create more stuff and so mm. that it doesn't make sense to put the ai as the hero for that when you're really trying to make the creator the hero yeah yeah talk to me a little bit about building the team and hiring and leadership what's it been like hiring people what's the process been like what's your your vision for building out the team into sort of this you know cohesive machine for marketing yeah so i was the first hire and i didn't have an onboarding process i just like chatted with with paul and chris <laughs> you know every day for the first couple weeks and then ran with it but my my process has been i've had a lot of bad onboarding experiences in my life this actually wasn't all that bad 
uh, because probably because I better experience, have more experience and I'm just a little bit more confident and can wing it a bit better at this point in my career. But I've had a lot of bad otherwise onboarding experiences. And so one of my goals was to create more of a really optimized, well-structured onboarding for my future employees. So I spent a lot of time on that the first week or so, making Mm. sure that when I hired somebody, they knew what they were doing for the first three weeks in great detail and then 30, 60, 90 at a pretty good high level view. And so that that's been super helpful because we just brought on marketer number two, who is the video lead last Monday and the onboarding process has been going pretty well. Found him through a Twitter thread where somebody just mentioned his YouTube channel because I was looking for, you know, a video person and that came up. And so I checked his YouTube video channel out or his YouTube channel out and he only had like four or five videos on there, but they were unbelievable. Clearly very good, very much on point with what we want to tell stories about. So we reached out to him and talked more about his process and everything. Probably three calls, two calls just with me, another call with the full team. And we didn't really have time to do a project or anything. So we just hired him. And then the, the second one, for community again very similar like she just made it under our radar through twitter so that both of the the marketing hires have been through twitter and the process was pretty similar just a couple calls maybe three calls with me she she did do a project she came prepared with a project that i hadn't asked her to do yet so that was a good sign I, i had written out a full project that i would like to have seen from her and she basically did that a meeting early without me even knowing she was going to do it And so she showed me everything that that we needed. We all agreed and uh, worked out the logistics from there. So it's been, it's been pretty smooth, but slower, I guess, you know, two, two employees within a month of me coming on board is actually pretty good, but there's definitely more to come. And the, the process can only get better from here because I'm adding stuff into our notion all the time to improve the onboarding and, and the hiring and everything right now. I think we're probably relying even a little bit too much on Twitter to source all of our talent. So we need to expand beyond that, but it's been a great well of a bunch of talent for, for people that have been coming in. And I know other people in the engineering side have been hired from there too. So if you're, if you're wondering about like how Twitter works and engine uh, or hiring, hiring people from there, like I have some thoughts on that and you can, y'all can DM me after, but that's, that's been the main driver. Yeah. Well, I'm curious what, why your thoughts on uh, Twitter like, I mean, both of them you've successfully found from Twitter. Twitter's a great platform. I know that you know, you've put a lot of time into it. I put a lot of time into it as well. I personally really like it, but you mentioned that how you maybe feel like you're over-indexed on Twitter a bit. But like, talk, talk me through your thoughts on Twitter as a place to hire people and to, and, and to find people. Pros, cons, drawbacks, things to be aware of. The, the biggest pro is that a lot of people are starting to build in public or learn in public, work in public. So that, that really helps eliminate at least two interviews from that whole process, because really what you're looking for in the first couple interviews is just, is this person a total waste of our time and do they know what they're talking about and are they a culture fit? And you can start getting pretty good ideas from content about that stuff. Mm -hmm. So if I, if somebody comes onto my radar, I will research their content before I, I, I didn't get a resume from either of those people. I didn't look at a single resume for either of these roles because that's just not what's actually going to tell you valuable information about a person. 
if you were applying to a job and I was, I was the hiring manager, like I wouldn't ask you for your resume at this point. I would go on Twitter or YouTube or wherever you're building content, Corey. And I would just dissect everything you're doing and figure out how that fits in. And you can easily see how stuff fits in when people are just talking about the same stuff that you're hiring for. So that, mm. that's one reason why Twitter works really well. Even if you're not like looking for a job, you should be tweeting, posting on LinkedIn or just like, you know, I'm, I'm partial to Twitter, but I think it's important to, to say that's not the one and only platform that exists out there. And some people will do a little bit better on LinkedIn, especially, you know, if you're more long form post, but not quite a blog post type person, maybe LinkedIn's better for you. Or if you really just like recording videos, just do YouTube, like focus on one right now and make a lot of stuff and get the you sucking at it part over as quickly as you can. <laughs> and then, and then you'll get into the opportunity side of things. But for me, Twitter has been working really, really well. And other people, the people that we've hired did not have big followings on Twitter at all. They had very small followings. I'd never heard of them before, but they came onto the radar because other people could vouch for them. And then I could see a little bit of their content and that just helps a ton to eliminate mm. the first couple interviews basically out of existence because you don't need to screen them at that point. Screening is is not really saying, can they do this job? It's more of just like, are they in the general realm of even knowing what they're talking about in marketing or whatever? That eliminates that completely. And then yeah. from there, we can dive into real conversations on the first try. Like, what are you, you know, what are you looking for in your career next? Why are you considering leaving? That kind of stuff. We can we can talk more about the actual role and my strategy and what I have in mind and what they could do to make it way better than what I've already thought of. We can get into that stuff in the first call. So it, it just expedites the whole thing. And I think Twitter's probably the best place for this because more people are building in public on Twitter than other platforms. But you could, in theory, do this anywhere. Like I've, I have hired people based on LinkedIn before and it's worked right now. We're really heavy in Twitter. And yeah, I think, I think we probably need to expand a little bit more and not just rely on Twitter for hiring, but until mm. it, until it stops proving to me that it's effective, I'm going to keep posting stuff there about job positions and finding the best talent. Like anytime I'm talking about, Hey, who are the best people? Who are the best YouTube channels? Who are the, whatever. What I'm really saying is like, I'm looking for interesting people that I could talk to about what either joining the team or doing consulting with us or, you know, just, just to get to know them and pick their brain. Like everything has its purpose and it's, it's way more helpful than any platform that I've used. But again, to focus on one that you'll use. And I think you can actually recruit through any platform if you're creative enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Twitter, obviously there's some things that lend itself, especially for what you're doing and your experience there. But of course it's not the, the end all be all. Speaking of Twitter and also speaking of sort of your experience, you also have a podcast called how I built my audience that I was uh, fortunate to be a guest on. I was, I was interested if I could flip that back on you and ask you, How'd you build your audience? So probably five years ago, it was all on LinkedIn when I started and I thought I was doing a great job, but I, I was probably just being a little bit spammy. Honestly, I was just connecting with a bunch of people in the industry and they would accept. And the cool thing about LinkedIn, I guess if, you know, if there's anything cool about LinkedIn anymore is that you're, you're connected with people you're not following or being followed. So when you connect with somebody, 
and they connect back, that's just, that just counts as a connection and they automatically follow you, but it never shows how many people you're following. And so there's kind of this thing built in, you know, the whole ratio between followers and following. And that's a, that's a big deal to some people. Well, to me back then it was, it was interesting to me and definitely a big deal. And it was cool that I could just add people really quickly and build up my following just by clicking buttons and not actually doing anything. Eventually I realized that that was ridiculous and a stupid strategy and I started creating more content. So I, I posted on LinkedIn for a really long time and it was going well most of that time. And I got consulting gigs and like a couple of jobs I got because of LinkedIn. So I, I said last year, I, I think I put out a tweet and I said, I believe that I owe the first six years of my career to LinkedIn and I owe the rest of it to Twitter. And I believe that that's true so far. We'll see how it goes. It was only a year ago that I said that, but that that's where I was creating content. And then I've tried everything else too, but I, I couldn't focus if I, if I was, when I was trying to do YouTube at the same time and a podcast and Twitter and, you know, I never really was doing Facebook cause I never beyond middle school. didn't think Facebook was cool, <laughs> but I couldn't do all that stuff all at one time, even though I thought I could. And so I was repurposing stuff that just shouldn't have been repurposed. It was boring. It wasn't helpful. I was still figuring out how to write better and how to craft a message that would actually resonate. And I tried Twitter in, in there too. Like when I started at, at that SEO firm, I got into Twitter because SEO people were really big on Twitter at that point, And I couldn't figure it out. I thought it was the most difficult platform in the world and mm. I couldn't get a like, nothing was working. And so I quit. And then like seven years later, I tried again and it still wasn't working for like two months in August of last year. And then finally, I just, I think I wore the algorithm down with content and it started throwing some bones my way. But yeah, the, like that's, that's really the genesis of it was five years of creating stuff on LinkedIn. And then I kind of ported a tiny bit of that over to Twitter, but only like a couple hundred people poured it over from, from my experience there. And then it's been from scratch basically on Twitter since August. And mostly it's been because I focus a lot more on first off copywriting, writing better stuff, better hooks, better messages in my tweets. That's helped a ton. Second is that I've genuinely just been building relationships on the platform and not focusing on much else. So I've, I've created a lot of different products on Gumroad and stuff like that throughout the past year. But really the whole purpose was to get more people into my ecosystem that I could talk with and that has helped me build pretty loyal fans or followers, I guess. I, I don't really, I don't know if I like that so much. It's just like cool group of people that we support each other. Like that, that has come together pretty well. And it's mostly because I try to give everything I know away for free without much expectation. When I do ask for something, I try to make it pretty valuable to people and you know, that just general marketing stuff. But yeah. More, more than anything, it's just quantity of content that's really gotten me mm. any kind of audience. Like the more that you can create in one focused place, the the better you're going to be. Not because like you're not going to hit on most of that content, but you'll learn a lot more quick, a lot quicker what sucks that you do if you post a lot more. So you post 10 times a day or you tweet 10 times a day, you can learn that like, oh, only one really did anything at all. I wonder why that is. And the engagement can help you tell a story of, you know, maybe how to synthesize your thoughts a little better, what you should talk about more. And I've, I've just tried to cut out stuff that people really don't like hearing from me 
and double down on stuff that is really valuable. And the more that I do that, the more that it snowballs. Hmm. Talk to me about building in public. When were you first introduced to the idea? When did it sort of like become, you know, a part of who you were and what you did and sort of your strategy, especially on a place on a platform like Twitter? Yeah, I think I've been doing it more than I realized for like the past seven years, but hmm. didn't really know about it as a movement until September or October of 2020. And you know, like most people, it was probably it was probably like KP or somebody like that that really introduced me to it. But for me, the hardest part about building a public, not not in terms of doing it, but just like, I guess my biggest problem with it is that most people don't actually share more than half the story. So building in public doesn't mean your typical Instagram post where you're crushing it and everything's great in the world, and these are all the successes. You have to show the other side of that story too. And so I try my best to openly talk about things that I suck at or days that I don't do well or things that flopped and not to be negative. It's actually, I think it can be positive because it helps other people know that regardless of like what my follower count is or what people think of me, like if, if somebody like that is a CMO and they seem to be doing okay. And they just admitted that they had an awful, like I tweeted yesterday that I just didn't do well yesterday. Like I, my hope is that more people can understand that that's totally okay because you cannot bat a thousand. It's impossible. You just can't do it. And you're not really doing yourself a service by pretending that the days where you bat zero don't exist. You should not pretend that that stuff doesn't exist so that, you know, building in public for me is we, we talked about this briefly too, but you have to find the balance between sharing everything and sharing just the stuff that people really care about that you're building in public. If you just share everything, you'll overwhelm people. And most of it's boring. Honestly, like if you really want to know what I'm doing and if I made that public, I'm just sitting in this chair typing stuff all day. Like 90% right. of my day is writing in notion. So <laughs> That's not super interesting, but there's another 10% of the day that most people still wouldn't share that maybe I could. So like here, here's some notes from a, a Zoom call that I had and I actually recorded it and usually you wouldn't get access to this kind of thing. I'm going to try to do more of that stuff that, you know, what's not working, what is working, what my core priorities are, how I'm organizing my thoughts, what I'm actually focusing on. I'm trying to make that stuff public so that somewhere down the road, another person that becomes a CMO for the first time or a VP or even just starts in marketing for the first time can have some idea of what it actually looks like. Because when I look, somebody asked me recently, like your whole being the first time CMO, what examples did you look to, to help you know what to do? And I'm like, well, honestly, I Googled, what does a CMO do? And I put that into YouTube as well. And I just tried to figure <laughs> that out because uh, it doesn't really exist for my situation whatsoever most of the CMO content out there is like old people talking right. about CMO CM of Coke or right. It's like the CMO of Burger King, which I watched an interview with him and it was like, it was interesting, but also copy AI is not close to what Burger King is in product or size or anything like that. And so it's totally different. I, I don't know how that helps me. And so I don't have a model and that's one motivating factor behind it is because most of my career, there's been no model for this stuff. I, we're, we're still pretty early on in the internet. And even though people have been doing SEO for 15 plus years now, and I joined only seven or eight years ago. So I'm, 
you know, I'm still pretty young into SEO consider, considering everything else because the internet's not been around for really that long and it's going to be around forever. So we're just at the beginning of this thing, which means that anyone listening to this right now probably has a skill that isn't very well taught yet. And you could really benefit somebody by trying to put that out there. And it doesn't have to be this formal course all the time or anything like that, but just talking about your thoughts in a quick little blog or just sharing your notes from meetings or from books that you read or whatever, that stuff can make a huge difference because there aren't a ton of models for modern day work. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually one of the things that you've packaged up pretty well, or maybe you're still packaging is the Twitter MBA for people who want to know how to do Twitter better and I want to level up their game to build their audience there. Could you give us like the, the, the high level, you know, like a framework or tactics or strategies for what's included in there and kind of give us like a taste of, of, you know, the, the mini Twitter MBA. Yeah, sure. So the, the core questions it's answering is the who, what, where, when, and why of Twitter basically. And everything is stemmed off of that. So it's a very hub and spoke type model with these different really simple questions, but those are the questions that actually matter. So for example, the who of Twitter would be who on earth do you make content for? How do you help those people who are, who's going to promote your stuff and who's going to be your hype people or your hype person when you create content because you need that network of people building you up. So that that's like one side of the course. The what of Twitter is a lot of the basics. What does this platform actually do and how are you using it wrong? Or what is the best way to do X, Y, and Z? So that that's really, when, when you, when I think about big projects like that, I just try to split it into the simplest terms possible. Just go back to first, first principles. And usually that means who, what, where, when, why that's like the most basic thing that you can do. So that's what mm -hmm. I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm going to try to teach this so that uh, a fourth grader could take the Twitter MBA and become pretty good at Twitter quickly. That that's the goal. So if you're expecting something that's like very academic and uh, very lofty uh, language and, and all that, it's not going to be like that. It, it'll be very, it'll be deep. It will have everything that you need. But also one thing that, that's really important is other Twitter courses exist too. And the reason that they exist is because they are also beneficial and they're just based on another person's experiences. So this, this course really is all that I can tell you about my Twitter experience. It is not the definitive guide for how to get to grow on Twitter because the way that Corey has grown on Twitter is different than the way that I have. And that's different than the way that other people have. And there's, there's no one size fits all and people need to understand that. So even though there is a clear structure for how to do it all throughout, it's, it's important to just remember, I have to find ways to make this work for me because all the course is just based on Blake's ideas and thoughts and experiences, nothing more. So I, I don't want people to, I, I don't want to pretend like it's uh, the end all be all, I guess it's, it's not at all, yeah. but, but it, it will be helpful and it will be built on top of float, which I'm building concurrently <laughs> with, uh, I love it with that. So, yeah, what I'm, I'm also curious to get your take on launches and sort of go to, go to market strategy and your approach to talking about something new because you've launched many, many things, many side projects and new projects float being the newest one, which I believe is sort of like a course enabled platform on top of notion, which you've mentioned a few times and seem to be one of the heavy power users. What's your strategy for, for launching and for, you know, even going from like, you know, pre-launch to, to launch to sort of keeping that momentum going. 
I, I organize it first and foremost by how big the launch should be. So like when, once you've determined the product or the feature or whatever that you're launching, you have to split it up into buckets and you can't just do the same thing for every single one. So mm. like there will be a small, medium or large launch. A large launch would be for a completely net new product that I want to promote. So like float would be a larger launch. A small launch might be within float. There, there could be a new feature that's cool, but it's a small launch. And so when you break it down like that, I have the clear distribution channels for each of those that I'll send to. And it's basically what I'll do is I'll start with the large launch and I'll write out every single possible distribution channel that I want to consider to launch on or spread the message from. And then from there for the medium, I'll just cut out half of them. And from the small for the small, I'll just keep it to the bare bones like you know, we'll put it in the Facebook group. I'll text some friends. Well, you know, whatever. Some Twitter DMs, keep it small. So that's that's the first step is prioritizing by weight of launch. For Float, the, the goal for any launch is you, you want to create some momentum before you actually launch. But it's also tough because you should launch way too early. You, mm. you should not wait until you're just like ready to go and everything's perfect to launch because then you've just waited way too long. You've lost out on so much valuable feedback that your customers, potential customers could have given you to make it better. Just because it looks nice doesn't mean it is nice. And so that's, mm. that's one key risk of launching too late. So you got to find that balance of how early on am I going to launch this thing and how am I going to build momentum before? So usually, honestly, the momentum building part is it comes Immediate, like the day after you actually commit to just do the project when nothing's mm. even built yet. So like you decide Friday night or, you know, Sunday night, I'm going to do this thing. I'm actually going to go all in and I'm going to have it built and I've got a partner and we're going to do this thing. Monday morning, you're building hype and you're, you're like saying, I'm building something new. If you want to know more, DM me, can't talk about it right now. Like build, build the hype up, get people engaged, start conversations actually tell people about it in the DMS. That's, that's totally fine. And then over the course of a few days, just like keep doing that, keep maybe adding a few more details on really get some momentum going because then when you launch a wait list or whatever, people know what's coming and it doesn't matter as much what time of day you post it at that point because people mm. may have turned on notifications for you because they're really interested to see, or, you know, they, they'll eventually get to it and it'll have better engagement because you've set up expectations for it. From then though, you've got to build the product and everything's kind of behind the scenes until that and you, you give out details here and there. And then for this, for the upcoming launch of actually launching the product, you probably need to have something unique built in. So not just like, hey, we're launching, click on this button, but some kind of unique program. And for us, what that looks like is we're helping a couple course creators actually make theirs in Notion for a bunch of different reasons right now mm. that helps a ton with us understand our own product and how it works and what doesn't work very well and to fix it. But then also it helps with hype. So the Twitter NBA is going to be launched completely on this thing purely for the launch basically, but also because I want to use it. Like I guess I shouldn't say purely for the launch. That's much more secondary to the fact that I'm building this because I want to use it. But yeah, that, that, that is a big reason why, because we, we wanted a special program associated with the launch of it. So not just click this button, but the Twitter NBA is launching. If you want to see what it was built on, check out float. And so they can go right. simultaneously. Yeah, I love that strategy of uh, we're seeing that even with Westcow and Goggins startup. And you know, it, it's great when you have sort of like a, a public facing product or app that can be showcased by people actually using your product 
And that actually does a lot of the speaking for you, right? That is yep. like a huge tangible form of, of social proof that you, you won't really get any, anywhere else. 100%. Yeah. I, I, I'm launching some swag too. I'm not sure if anybody's going to buy it, but it's there. We, <laughs> I've got some swag coming my way. So that, there's some stuff you can do and some of it's going to flop and some of it's going to do really well. But ultimately, my my biggest advice on launches, just to kind of wrap up this topic really is you got to do a lot of them until you do mm. a good one, probably. I've, I've launched a lot of different stuff and honestly missed a ton of steps on most of them. And I've learned what kind of order of operations needs to be in place for a small, medium or large launch. And that's an accumulation of like six years of doing this stuff. So if you're just expecting to read a blog post and then have a great launch, probably not going to happen. Mm. You probably need to launch a bunch of stuff and hopefully the stuff you launch wasn't your, your golden idea. And that's further down the road because you, you know, some people may get it right off the bat. Sometimes lucky things happen and the launch just takes off, especially if you're well known, but most of the time you got to kind of flop a, a bit before you actually hit it big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, I, I completely agree. I was wondering if you could unpack this tweet for me, but you said the ultimate marketing hack having a CEO that understands marketing. What was yeah. going on through your head? Like, can you just unpack that and elaborate a little bit? I've heard, yeah, I've heard Dave Gerhardt say that too, but if, especially if you're a CMO, if you're the only one that understands marketing, then the likelihood that you're going to be able to try crazy stuff is pretty low. If your CEO understands marketing at least a little bit, it really opens things up for you to experiment, try new things, get a little crazy. And if you, like we mentioned risk earlier on, if you don't have some risk baked into your strategy and your execution, then you will end up being at best an average company. That's the best case scenario. But if you're, if you're willing to test stuff out, if you're willing to get a little weird sometimes, then, then you do have a chance to take it above that level. Not guaranteed mm. whatsoever, but you have a chance. And without a, C a CEO or other team members that at least can appreciate or understand what you're doing, it is almost impossible to be comfortable doing that. If, you are the if you're the CMO and you, you are the only marketer that understands stuff in, the, in a leadership aspect, you're going to feel really compelled to play it safe. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Also really helps your budgets and your ability to hire people when your CEO understands like, yeah, our, our emails aren't great. Let's get a life cycle marketer or whatever. When, when they understand that, that is a game changer because otherwise you have to come to the, to the table with proposals that you have no idea how they're going to be received because you don't know how understandable they are to the leadership team. So I think that's really the root of it that I'm learning. And I'm very thankful that Paul, even though he's not a marketer by trade, he's, he's actually an investor by trade, but I'm thankful that he gets Twitter really well. And because we have that in common and he understands marketing pretty well outside of that, because he's worked with a lot of companies that helps a lot to, for me to be able to just be like, Hey, I've got this crazy idea. These are the risks. These are the rewards. What do you think? And more often than not, it's, it's a yes, because he can understand where I'm coming from as opposed to mm -hmm. just being like, well, how does it affect the bottom line? Like, I, you know, sometimes that's not always possible for everything to affect the bottom line directly. Sometimes you just got to try things that are more long-term plays. And so, yeah, I mean, hopefully that answers that for you. Absolutely. Yeah. What about skills? Like, what do you think are the, the key skills, practices, things for marketers to, to really get good at? in order to do your best work, especially today, 
when you know the, the the landscape is always changing there's all sorts of different types of skill sets that you could have there you know there was a big sort of narrative around being a t-shaped marketer but curious to hear your take on like what are the really important things you think people marketers should be focusing on building today i don't know if you'd count this as a skill but i think absolutely the number one most important thing is energy hmm. i think you have to be if you want to be a great marketer or a great anything energy has to be there all the time when you go on podcasts it's energy when you go into a meeting it's energy all the time like that that sounds really daunting because some people are just naturally chill and you know the energy's there but it's like it's all in here and that's okay but sometimes right. like I, I am also talking about mental energy but also just the physical energy to make your presence known is i believe really underrated because in my career I, I think a lot of it is, you know, just based on the fact that I have, I have pretty high energy. And so I come across well to people when I'm in an interview or things like that. And I'm really eager to learn and I have the energy to put in the work. And so it, it all comes full circle. And that that's a key thing you can debate whether it's really a skill or not, but there are things that you could probably do to pump yourself up and you just need to figure that out. But I, I think that that's huge. Also copywriting is huge. I don't think mm. that that is a shocker to anybody, but I am not a copywriter. I will never pretend to be a copywriter, but everybody does write copy in marketing. And so the more that you can understand what makes great writing, the better you're going to do. And the more writing you do, the better you'll be at it. So that's another core skill to, to grow out. And then, you know, maybe, maybe for me, the final one would be questioning everything or thinking really strategically in terms of, question like questioning it's it, it's really it's really hard to say no to stuff and the more that you can question things not for the sake of just wanting to be contrarian but just get in the habit of questioning things so that you can expand your viewpoints and where the the things you're like if, if somebody comes with a campaign your natural inclination is probably more often than not going to be okay let's look into it whether or not you have an intention of looking into it or not but if you have a mentality of coming in being like, let's be really strategic about this and ask all the questions left and right about this thing. And then we'll decide if we still want to do it. Mm. That is a skill that I did not have for a very long time that now is proving to be very valuable. I love that. Yeah, that's great. I'm wondering if you could possibly be a bit vulnerable with me for a second and talk about some failures or mistakes. Yeah. I'd be happy to also return and, you know, if you want to <laughs> share some of mine, but I figure if, if anyone could, it would be you. What are some, some things that you, that you failed at or made a mistake at, or just, you know, maybe didn't turn out the way you thought it and what, like, what are the things that you learned from it as well? Sure. I mean, recently I sent out an email to like our entire email list with, from the wrong email address with typos in it that, that was great oh, man. <laughs> you know three weeks into being that one CMO always makes your heart drop yeah i've put out a lot of products that totally flopped that i thought would be great so one mm. one of the products that i've done really well with is uh landing page audits so i did a spinoff of that where i would basically make a a quick little dashboard in notion actually <laughs> coming full circle with that again but I, I would build them a dashboard in notion and it would show them how good their website was basically in terms of user experience. And this, it was a manual process. It wasn't software or anything. It was a manual process me going through. It was basically another type of audit. I thought it was going to do well because that's kind of what I'm doing for people on their landing pages. I wanted to do that hmm. as a site in total, just focusing on UX, put it out, and literally not a single person bought it. 
and that didn't feel great. Nobody cared. I priced it pretty affordably so that people would care more and it didn't, it just didn't work. Nobody wanted mm. it. And so that, that was super valuable because, you know, it, it helped me understand where I needed to put my efforts and focus. It clearly was not in that. And sometimes you just got to take the L but another thing that's comforting about that silence is that the silence means no one was paying attention to begin with. So, mm, right. you know, it, it flopped. Yeah. But there weren't 50,000 people that watched me flop in real time. Nobody just, nobody cared. Nobody was watching mm -hmm. and that's why it flopped. So, you know, you, you can take that with a grain of salt, but I mean, it's, it's nice to know that there are pros and cons to every situation. I mean, I mentioned throughout my career, a lot of, a lot of the time I, accepted positions or new roles or new responsibilities without actually having that skill set because I, I wanted to push myself and I knew that that was where I was going, but I wasn't quite there yet. And so, you know, just for the sake of vulnerability, I'd done that a ton. And sometimes I, I got passed up for jobs and sometimes I actually got the job, but I would almost always go into a job feeling super inadequate and, didn't really want to talk to anybody when I joined because I was really focused on trying to not suck at what I did. And that has definitely been there. And weirdly enough, this new job as a CMO, which is not even close to what I've done before, is the least stressed out I've felt about mm. <laughs> starting a new role and the most qualified that I've felt starting a new role. So the, the, more, the more reps you put in, I think the more confidence you can have and you realize even the people in the most prestigious positions that you regard, they're figuring stuff out. And I'm certainly still figuring stuff out, but I'm just a lot more comfortable with the fact that I'm figuring it out than I was back then. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for being vulnerable. I appreciate you being honest and, and sharing those types of things. I, th I think everyone, every marketer has a, I sent the wrong email or I sent an email that wasn't yeah. supposed to go out to everyone or I sent an email without a link <laughs> in it or the yeah. wrong link, for example. So I feel you there as well. One of the questions I've been kind of having some fun with at the end is asking about a recent purchase. Is there something that you've bought recently uh, that you could walk me through sort of like why you bought it, what it is, and we could, you know, go back and forth a little bit about uh, the buyer journey, if you will. Yeah, I, I can give you a SaaS one. And then at the end, if there's some time for like a, a DDC, DTC product, I can make do that too. But yeah, so recently I re-upped with my account on V.io, V-E-E-D.io. And it's basically, it's like Canva for videos. So basically just lets you add some flair to your videos, add subtitles, add a background, add different elements on top of it, like stickers and stuff like that. So it's a really cool tool. And, and I've been liking it a ton because I always do subtitles and then closed caption or, or transcriptions from any podcast or anything that I record. And I've found that their captions are super accurate compared to other tools. So mm. that, that one's been awesome. I've really enjoyed using that. I, I'd used it a while back, but just recently committed to like buying it and sticking with it for good. So that that's a yeah. fantastic one. Yeah, that's it's really interesting that the accurate captions is like kind of like the killer feature, and that's the thing that really sort of like drew, drew you back in. But I'm also curious, like, what was like the 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 moment that you decided to you know re up with feed and to go back to them? What what was going on that you were like, okay, I'm just gonna pull the trigger and go back to it? It's the fact that I have like 25 episodes of my podcast in a backlog right now, and so I really <laughs> need to start pumping these out very quickly, and they they all have video attached to them, so. That's honestly, that's a big reason. I just have a ton of videos that need to get edited and I don't have mm. a ton of time to actually make them perfect through what, you know, what garage or what not garage band, any, any of these other things. Like I need, I just need someone that's going to do it for me. So yeah, 
that that's basically all it took was just having a sh- just massive quantity of content staring at me and be like, here's 25 hours of stuff that you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. What yeah. about a, a D2C example? Yeah, so I right now I'm actually, I have a weighted blanket on under underneath here really it's uh, yeah sometimes i get a little bit restless when i'm sitting down for so long and so this this helps me just chill out a little bit i got this one on amazon it's not it's not one of those fancy really expensive ones on a shopify store it's just from amazon and it was like 40 bucks but that's pretty nice i've been doing that recently and i got it recently Hmm. and been doing that and helps maybe keep me in place at least a little bit more not fidget so much yeah, what what made you think that that would be a good sort of solution to the restlessness and fidget fidget, fidget fidgeting? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I really I really got it for nighttime, like in bed, because sometimes I have mm. restless legs. But I I didn't really think it was going to transfer over into my office, like when I'm doing a podcast with you and I'm just wearing a blanket the whole time without you knowing. Yeah, no, I didn't I didn't know. I just tried it a, a few days ago. I just tried it out and it was it's been okay. It's a little bit hot, but. I, it's a good purchase. I would recommend it. It's it's not going to solve all your problems, but it can maybe it just help you feel a little bit more grounded. That's fun. I love it. Well, thanks for thanks for walking through that. I'd also love to take a peek at your swipe file, if you will. Yeah. And some marketing examples, campaigns you think are worthy of saving. Can you walk me through a few of your favorites? Yeah. So one of the best ads that I've seen in a really long time, I'm sure you saw this too, was the KitKat Zoom break. Did you see this one? Mm, yep. Yeah, so it's basically a, an image of your cal- your Google Calendar, and it's like ten Zoom calls stacked on top of each other. But in between them is a Kit Kat, so you're like taking a break with a Kit Kat bar. I thought that was an unbelievable campaign. I, I don't know like how widespread they actually, if or if they even did run it, but I saw like the mockups for it, and it looks amazing. And I, <laughs> I, they, I saw it on, at a bus stop. Uh, really, you actually saw in San Diego. It. You yeah. actually saw it. Cool, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, so. I, the reason why this it really works for me and pretty much why I keep anything in my swipe file is if it just passes that filter of, man, I wish I really thought of that first. Right. <laughs> like, that's, that's my filter for anything in my swipe file. That was definitely one. Another ad that I saw was Ikea had this ad. They have this ad where it's a pill bottle that says sleep on it, but the pills that are coming out of it are pillows. And I, I, I think that one is like, I don't know if you've seen that one either, but it says, I haven't uh, seen that one. It says tomorrow starts tonight. I'll send it to you, but yeah, it's just a pill bottle, but pillows are coming out of it. And then it says $13 economic ergonomic pillows. I, I thought that one was <laughs> super clever too. Again, just wish, yeah. wish that I'd thought of that. And then if you're looking for like landing pages, a good SAS landing page is superhumans. If you go superhuman.com slash VIP, it is oh. incredibly simple. It is literally just social proof and a button, and I think it's super effective, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Another one is if you're, for like a newsletter, if you're looking for a use case there, I think you can't really go wrong with the Morning Brew. Another thing that I know about this as well is that morningbrew.com, their landing page has gone through so much rigorous testing, and this is what's come out the other end. So that's always a good sign of maybe where you can right. look to start. If somebody else has done a lot of the grunt work to test things out, you should probably at least test it out yourself. But that again, you'll, you'll see a theme here that I think some of the best landing pages are incredibly simple and have very little content, uh, just, just enough to really hook you and give you an understanding. You definitely want to be clear. But beyond that, I, I don't think you need too much fluff. Like The writing yeah. is usually going to hurt you more than help you. And I think that there are some examples there that help prove that out. 
I've got, I've got a full swipe file here that <laughs> I've got in front of me, but I love it. Th- yeah. Just a, good ones. one more comment on the, on the morning brew landing page. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause actually, so it's the swipe files landing page isn't nearly as like minimalistic and, and simple, but I actually modeled it after sort of the morning brew, the hustle, mm-hmm. like some of the newsletter pages that I was seeing for that same reason, I knew that they were converting well. So I just figured I'd sort of model after it and I made a few tweaks and it converts like crazy. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's pretty astonishing. I, I tweeted pretty recently that like it was, it was a weird like step up going from like single digit subscriber, new subscribers every day to double digit new subscribers every day. And it was largely because of the, the landing page change. So I, I kind of, I think I like five X my conversion rate, just awesome. changing that one, that one thing. Yeah. That, that simplicity model proves out too. I was talking with, you know, Neville Medora, do you know who he yeah. is? Oh yeah. So his he's got copywritingcourse.com. If you look at that landing page, it is the dumbest landing page. I was talking to, <laughs> I was talking to him about this. It's so dumb. It's just a stick figure guy that's pointing to the form and it's just so poorly drawn and the font and everything kind of looks scammy, but he says it converts it. Sometimes it converts at 30%. Oh and, my gosh. <laughs> It's just like, it works. He said he's tested all the stuff to make it look really pretty. He's tested all that other stuff. And it's like, it, the design is not what matters. It's the fact that it's focused and it's clear what it is. And there's some psychological stuff too. Like the, the, the stick figure guy, he's looking up at the header and he's pointing to the button. So there's, hmm. there's some psychological stuff, but really it's just the fact that it's an overly simple landing page that's easy to understand. And so the right. stuff that you'll find in my swipe file is usually very simple aha moment stuff. And usually it's an aha moment because they've taken such a complex concept and made it look so easy. That's the best marketing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one more comment on the KitKat example. I think that one is so genius because it really gets down to like the job to be done of a KitKat. And they're, they're telling you quite literally like, Hey, this is the time and circumstance to eat a Kit Kat. It's in between yeah. Zoom meetings. Yeah. Something that everyone can relate to right now. <laughs> but also now, every time you're in between a Zoom meeting, you're to think, do I have a Kit Kat? Oh, I don't have a Kit Kat. I kind of want a Kit Kat now. <laughs> and yeah. and it's, it's just the perfect sort of, that's like real demand generation. When people talk about that. It's like, dang, I, I really want a Kit Kat now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Most, most of the time people talk about demand generation. They're really, really talking about lead generation. But right. that is that is a true instance of demand generation right there. <laughs> creating creating demand, creating desire. Well, last question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? Nothing is marketing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's true. Like everything can be. Anything can be anything if you want it. If you start looking for hmm. examples of stuff, like if, if you just have birds on your mind and you look at the sky, you're going to find clouds that look like birds, that type of thing. So you, you can... If, if you are a marketer and you're trying to look for inspiration, what it means to me is like, yeah, you can actually literally look for anywhere in your life around you and find examples of good marketing or bad marketing. Also on the flip side of that, you know, may, maybe also on a sub on a different level, like everything around us is kind of marketing to us. Like I've got paintings on my wall something compelled me to buy that thing. I don't, Hmm. when I look at it now, I don't think about that, but I was marketed to at some point to, to purchase that. And so there's like a, Oh, everything I can learn new things from nature and everything's marketing. And then there's like this, Oh, everything is trying to sell me stuff. (laughs) There's both sides of it. Yeah. Yeah. Double-edged sword two two sides to each coin. But Blake, it's been uh, a pleasure being able to talk in person again, be able to catch up. I love all the stories. Appreciate you being vulnerable and thanks for coming on. Appreciate you, Corey. Thank you so much. It was fun.
Thanks again to Blake for coming on the show. Also, make sure to check out copy.ai as well as Float. If you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for coming on. Blake is a Twitter power user, so he'd really, really appreciate that. And he'd also probably just get a kick out of it. To wrap up here, here are two of my top takeaways. One, I love that he's thinking about their marketing strategy for copy.ai, investing in video and in content. He's acting on conviction that this is a bet that'll pay off later. And secondly, Twitter is a catalyst for making your own luck. There is no way he would have gotten his job or had the level of success he's had with his projects without consistently sharing on Twitter day in and day out. And he is prolific. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.